Welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm KUNM News Director Megan Kamrick. For more than two centuries, museums and universities have kept collections of Native American human remains in the name of science. A recent ProPublica report found that despite the promise of the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, institutions have continued to hold and use indigenous remains in research projects aimed at things like dating cultivation of corn and showing when migration routes were active. This morning on Let's Talk New Mexico, we'll explore the use of Native American remains for academic purposes and the challenge of getting remains returned to their homelands. And we want to hear your thoughts. You can find links to read the ProPublica Repatriation Project at our website, KUNM.org. Is it moral to use indigenous remains for research? What about if the remains are destroyed in the process? When and how should they be returned to their tribal communities? Email letstalk at kunm.org or call 505-277-5866. And a quick shout out to our reporter, Jeanette Didios. She began researching and gathering guests for this show last week, but had to turn over hosting today because she is not feeling well. So we hope you're feeling better, Jeanette. We begin this morning with reporter Mary Hudetz from ProPublica. She's an enrolled member of the Crow Tribe in Montana and is the past president of the Native American Journalists Association, now the Indigenous Journalists Association. Mary has extensive experience investigating and writing about issues facing Native Americans and tribes, particularly in the Southwest. Prior to joining ProPublica, she was on the Seattle Times investigative team. And before that, she worked for the Associated Press in Albuquerque and Phoenix. And she's back working from New Mexico now and joins us by Zoom. Welcome, Mary. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, For this long project you did with your colleagues called the Repatriation Project, what prompted you to start doing this, to be looking at these issues? We started looking at this um, well over maybe as nearly two years ago, actually. Um, And we had before us the of figures that are publicly known, not widely publicly known, but at least known um, by people who follow this issue that museums can, despite NAGPRA passing in 1990, um, that museums continue to hold more than half of what they had initially reported holding, um, which is well over, which was well over 100,000 ancestors and um, hundreds of thousands of items that they report um, through data to the National Park Service. Um, so we just basically decided we wanted to take that data, sort of see who beyond that top line number, like who is holding the most, um, what are the stories behind it, how did they collect it in the first place, um, and really like what decisions from 1990 to now have resulted in this very slow pace of return. Um, and so we found actually a nuanced story behind that. Um, you know, I think there's a, a range of reasons um, for why. Uh, so, And when you say 100,000 remains of ancestors, are we talking about 100,000 individual people? Yeah, the federal data um, is incomplete. Uh, it's self-reported by institutions, but it does, um, I think, which is good, I think it counts uh, people. So, um, like, which recognizes sort of the humanity um, mm-hmm of what we're looking at. Right. Um, <clears throat> how did museums and researchers come to be in possession of these ancestor remains? It's a long, kind of century-long story, um, which I can sort of distill here. But, um, 
you know, I think in the 1800s or even before, um, there's just always been a part of this country, this interest in excavation of um, and looting of native grave sites. Um, and then around the 1860s, big museums began to open. Our museums that we know today is big ones, like, um, you know, Harvard's Peabody Museum, followed by the Field Museum, American Museum of Natural History, uh, Smithsonian, of course, like they came into almost like a competition, uh, which is unsettling, but it was that um, to collect as much as they could. And back then it was for scientific research. Um, and of course, things started to, start to evolve um, after, you know, maybe around World War II, there's also many excavations because the country was expanding, infrastructure was happening. So our infrastructure projects were leading to more excavations. Oh, you um, mean they'd be building a road or a dam or something? And correct. In, in fact, like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is a huge um, sort of federal uh, utility, was at one point um, one of the greatest holders mm. of ancestral remains. Um, so I think that's very much sort of the two biggest pieces behind um, why they came to collect what they had. Um, and then now we fast forward to the present and looking through records and sort of speaking to sources, understanding that oftentimes, not always, but um, I think science has been cited as a reason not for NAGPRA. Like, so I think many museums and archaeologists early um, in the like 1980s sort of um, lobbied against NAGPRA because of their interest in science. And that debate still continues. Um, tell me more about that. What are some of the scientific arguments that have been put um, forward? Yeah, early um, and more outwardly, I think like in the in the nineteen nineties and even you know well into like the last maybe a decade ago, I think there was a lot of um, like cases made among scientists and professors that you know like they were entitled to these. Um, these remains that they were too important to science to return to Native people. And of course, on the flip side of that, you know, NAGPRA was argued for and passed um, because Native activists and tribes spent um, decades arguing that they had a human right to have a say over the treatment of, of their people. And how did you and your ProPublica colleagues incorporate and ground your reporting in feedback from Indigenous communities? Mm -hmm. um, so we, like I said, the, the reporting took us a very long time. Um, and I think through that we tried, I had a lot of, um, I felt like I understood that this issue is looked at probably differently at different by different tribes. And for some it is something they want to speak about. And then for others, it's, it can be very, very sensitive. Um, and then even when you try to do want to speak about it, you want to bring an incredible amount of sensitivity to that reporting. So um, we tried to, of course, the classic way reporters reach out to people, such as Teresa Pestle, who's joining today, um, to understand um, the perspectives from the communities on the issue. And then we also, um, took some new approaches or semi-new approaches in journalism of sending out um, emails to literally every tribe, 
um, Tribal Historic Preservation Office in the country, uh, or based on the list we had through like the Bureau of Indian Affairs and, and other um, resources to sort of make it known that we were doing this reporting and to seek feedback and then set up some Zooms with different national organizations. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. What were some of the key problems you found with the Native American um, graves? I'm going to say NAGPRA, but I want to say the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, which we've been talking about a lot. Yeah, from the start, I mean, I think um, NAGPRA itself is praised as sort of landmark legislation. Um, but I think the regulations, which is sort of the more nuts and bolts after the legislation passes, you know, the federal agencies um, sort of established how it's going to be enforced and, and overseen um, and complied with. And uh, that process has been extremely messy over the years. There's been attempts after attempts to sort of um, begin to bring it closer to what I think tribes believe the initial intent of it was, which was for them, it was a, a law passed in the interest of Native people. Um, but for many years, I think it was, I think, argued by science and universities that it was supposed to sort of be this like law of compromise between them and Indigenous people. Um, and then I think also sort of some other classic things like it was underfunded, um, there's never really been enough money, um, perhaps especially for tribal communities to to um, do the work of repatriation, which is is expensive and, and um, takes a lot of time. Um, turning to research for a minute, you also reported that federal agencies like the National Science Foundation are actually creating incentives for institutions to hold on to ancestor remains in ways that undermine NAGPRA, how so? Yeah, that's, I think, another sort of um, uh, loophole in the law or, or portion of the law that just um, went sort of under the radar, at least, of rulemakers for a long time. Um, so, you know, one thing about NAGPRA is it has a continued, under, this is a long answer, but under NICRA, um, museums can declare or do declare vast portions of their collections to be culturally unidentifiable, which means they're saying, we don't know which tribe we should re repatriate to. Um, sometimes they don't have any information, and so those, those decisions are understandable, but that's a very small amount um, number. Um, really, they're... Most of the time, institutions know exactly where um, an excavation happened that resulted in their collection. But by declaring their collections culturally unidentifiable, um, they're essentially able to keep what they have and then continue to study it. Um, and, and sometimes they know exactly. I think there's clear claims either publicly or through the NICRA process to those ancestors. Um, and then within that, um, I think because the federal government is so vast, um, you know, NAGPRA is enforced within the Interior Department, overseen by an office in the National Park Service, but an entirely different federal agency, the National Science Foundation, um, and also some others, including like uh, the National Institute of Health, um, have funded, provided federal funding um, to institutions or to scientists to research these collections 
that the federal assets should be returned or museums should be working on returning to tribes. And to our listeners, what do you think about doing research that incorporates the remains of indigenous people? Is this ethical? You can call 505-277-5866 or email let's talk at KUNM.org. Um, Mary, you touched on uh, the co- <clears throat> museums or institutions or researchers arguing they don't have enough information to make repatriation decisions. How did this play out, for example, with remains from Chaco Canyon that were excavated many decades ago? Yeah, um, we actually set our most recent story at Chaco Canyon. Um, And I think one of the things that drew me to that site was one, I'm here in New Mexico, um, but also had began to see I had always understood the clear, um, you know, I'm not from here, my tribe is in Montana, but the clear claims um, of lineage to that site by especially the Pueblo people in New Mexico. Um, And then to see that it also is on the list of um, areas that museums say most, for the most part say is culturally unidentifiable. Um, And then, so I guess just to restart, sort of general reporting, speaking of sources, um, I was guided towards this issue of scientific research and could see that Chaco Canyon, it's, it's pretty astounding even from the point of excavation, um, there was a scientist present um, and that studies have continued, I think, on that site for, for a very long time. Um, and I was intrigued by the idea that after more than a century of study, they, they museums could still say that they didn't know who to repatriate to. And this um, was uh, mostly the American Museum of Natural History? Yeah, American yeah. Museum of Natural History has the largest collection. And they, um, in recent like decades, um, you know, probably even before, but I think the records we have are, are recent. We could see, I could see just um, how one research project really led to the next. One federally funded research project would lead to the next because the museum would grant access to its collection um, until fairly recently they they issued a moratorium Mm. on research. And there is destructive research and non-destructive research. I don't know if you want to get into that or should we hold off for that? (laughs) Um, I think that's a good conversation for the group. But okay. Yeah, it's a good, okay. good one. Um, does the NAGPRA law give tribes say over whether this kind of testing can happen? The NAGPRA law is, um, no, there's a, there's a loophole there, essentially, at the moment. Um, that, that um, yeah, I think there's what the law says, and then I think there's what ethics say. Um, and right now, the law still does allow for research on items that are and ancestors that are declared culturally unidentifiable. And it's worth noting that institutions kind of have still have like the full power to decide if their collection is um, can be affiliated to a tribe or not. Um, and so now there is there are have, the federal the Interior Department has put um, regulations forward that they're, they're still under review, but that um, at least in the latest version we saw would propose um, that institutions should grant, should give tribes a say over whether research can be t- conducted on their ancestors or even if culturally unidentifiable. Um, I still, there's still like some fuzziness to me on how they would enforce that. Um, 
but at least that seems like a big step. Oh, this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're talking about repatriating the remains of Native Americans held by museums and research institutions. You can find the ProPublica series we're talking about about this topic at KUNM.org. We want to hear from you. You can call 505-277-5866. We'll be back in a moment. Support for KUNM comes from the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program. The ACP is a federal program that helps eligible households get the internet needed for work, school, health care, and more. Information and application at getinternet.gov. Listeners appreciate how nonprofit organizations are helping the community. Nonprofit underwriting at KUNM highlights your work while supporting KUNM programming. To become a nonprofit underwriter, call Aaron Steele at 505-277-2163. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, a conversation with poet and revolutionary Gioconda Belli, who recently was stripped of her citizenship from Nicaragua by the authoritarian government of Daniel Ortega. The revolution made me who I am. A lot of my experience comes from that. The good and the bad. That's next time on Latino USA. That's Latino USA, Monday mornings at 8 a.m. on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're taking your calls about the tens of thousands of remains of indigenous Americans still in museums and research institutions. What questions do you have for our guests? When and how should these ancestors be returned to their communities? Give us a call at 505-277-5866. You can also email us at letstalk@kunm.org. I want to bring on my next guest. Teresa Pascal is director of the Office of Tribal Historic Preservation with Acoma Pueblo and was also featured in ProPublica reporter Mary Hudetz's stories. Teresa, thanks for joining us this morning by Zoom. Thank you, Megan. We talked about the testing done on remains from Chaco Canyon um, held by Harvard University and the American Museum of Natural History. The research paper that was published uh, from that found that ancestral Puebloans shared a matrilineal line. This prompted all these sort of girls rule kind of headlines. Your reaction to the paper was, we could have told you that. (laughs) What are researchers missing by not engaging more with tribes such as yours before doing this kind of work? Well, I think primarily what is missing when uh, tribes are not... um, offer an opportunity to engage in research is really that foundational uh, relationship building. Uh, I think what has driven academics um, to pursue research is, is the fundamental desire to understand um, our search for knowledge of understanding our world, our environment, our past. However, tribal communities is one of the longest communities that that have a relationship with the land and these special places have have centuries upon centuries of of internal knowledge about these places about how community and culture has been passed down throughout generations and oftentimes researchers overlook that as being um, the stuff of folklore or things that may not be able to be quantified um, or clearly defined. 
Uh, and so oftentimes that traditional knowledge is, is dismissed and, and Western uh, science, Western uh, research is often the vein of um, inquiry that is followed. And so what we miss really is a richer understanding of what that data could mean um, to the greater public, but um, more importantly, that relationship building um, between researcher and academia and tribal communities. And Teresa, do you think this kind of uh, non-collaborative research uh, happens often, or, or are you seeing more consultation with tribes than we might expect? I know you can only speak from your perspective from ACOMA, but... Sure. Um, here at the Pueblo of Acoma, we certainly have um, certain agencies and institutions who engage with tribal communities well. Um, they have uh, learned from past mistakes and have made a, a deep engaged effort to do um, tribal engagement with communities where those resources have been identified that may be of interest to them. But certainly there's always room for improvement. We have institutions who have never reached out to um, a community like mine or um, have done research um, using technology that have not engaged with our Pueblo. And that research is conducted on resources that have a direct tie to our tribal community. And do you think this is part a legacy of mistrust by indigenous people after hundreds of years of not just colonization, but being subjects of experimentation and scientific inquiry? Well, certainly there has been a legacy um, in terms of academia and research in, in the field of anthropology and archaeology in order to understand um, humans in general and the human race and and the whole study of evolution and so on and so forth. Um, and that not only has been uh, used against indigenous people, but it's been used against many other uh, communities of color. Um, and that's because of the values that were in place at a time where we were not seen as equal and we were seen as less than. And so there is this fundamental um, thought that still pervades the discipline of, um, we have a right to use these uh, ancestral remains. We have the right to study these artifacts because we haven't connected ancestral remains and artifacts to present day people. And somehow there is this thought, uh, even in its, you know, subtle kind of underground thought that says we have a right to study these things without having to get the permission of the present day descendant communities. Do you think the apprehension goes both ways with researchers now hesitant to connect with Native people because of this legacy? Yes, I think there is some hesitation both ways. When NAGPRA was passed as a law, the pushback from institutions uh, really was this fear that with the passage of the law, there will be a clearing of all of the ancestral remains and um, 
artifacts housed at institutions that would not be able to be studied any further. And while NADPRO really was intended to give um, indigenous communities a greater say over the ability to make claims for ancestral remains and items, um, items of patrimony. Uh, really what we, what we have seen in present day is that there hasn't been an immediate clearing of those items and there's reasons for that. Um, and that. And that as tribal people and even here at Akuma, we too are curious about understanding the past of um, connecting our understanding of how our people moved and used these places where they settled um, as affirmation of our traditional indigenous knowledge. And so I think those fears have been unfounded. Um, and I think there are ways that in a, from a collaborative approach, we can build our understanding of the past when it directly involves tribes. But when it excludes that tribal input, it excludes that tribal voice, or is done without the permission of tribes, then really it only benefits the researcher or perhaps the institution. Mary, you talked to several Indigenous researchers for the ProPublica articles, and they're academics and they do collaborative work with tribes researching remains. We did reach out to several of them for the show, but they were unavailable. Could you give us a sense of what that collaborative approach looks like? Sure. Um, yeah, I would say first off that um, I think this sort of awakening to ethics within science um, what it means to collaborate with tribal and descending communities has come from tribes and then also from, I think, these indigenous researchers um, who work in archaeology or what I think is called paleo um, genomics, which is study of old, um, very ancient genetics. Um, and so I think that they, um, they, one, researcher in particular, Alyssa Bader, um, you know, as, as Teresa noted, um, I think Native people too are interested in their past and science, and she had been drawn to um, researching in her Native community. Um, she is from actually the North. She's um, sort of, I think, a tribe that is has people present in both British Columbia and Alaska. Um, but for her, I think it means not just, you know, asking Native people for permission to do the research, but what does it mean to actually make them partners in the research? Um, I think that might be, you know, science isn't quite there yet. I think they're sort of at the stage of saying of museums and scientists asking for permission from tribes, making a case, and then still pursuing the research on their own. But for her, I think it would be... Um, involving the tribe and the questions that are being asked. Um, and then when, um, and then sort of going back to them when the research sort of steers her into different directions. We do have a caller. Owen from Albuquerque is on the line. Owen, thanks for calling into Let's Talk New Mexico. What was your comment or question? Well, thanks for taking my call. Um, well, I sort of jumped the gun and 
I called in and I was just going to make a comment and then ask a question. Uh, but the representative from ACMA kind of made part of my comment for me. I, I firmly believe that one, this, you know, holding of these remains is just disgusting. It denies the humanity of these people and the, and their, you know, the uh, continuation of their people. And, but it's also an attempt to understand the history and science and knowledge that was destroyed through colonization. Um, and so that was just my comment, which I believe that she made. But uh, my question is, as a UNM alumni, as an anthropology degree holder and a settler in New Mexico, what can I do to help facilitate or apply pressure where there needs to be or anything I can do to um, repatriate these people back to their homes. Thank you, Owen. Uh, Teresa, would you like to take that? Sure. Thank you, Owen, for that question and your comment. I think there are ways that uh, folks can help create change or that shift. First of all, I think within academia, we have to look at the subjects that are being taught to our up and coming uh, anthropology slash archaeology students. I'm a student of UNM's archaeology program. And part of what um, I think is missing within academia is really integrating a tribal perspective into educating uh, those that are pursuing archaeology degrees, like what is the ethical um, obligation if you become a licensed professional archaeologist? Who do you begin to talk with? Creating a specific um, engagement with tribes to talk about how does that discipline, uh, the discipline of anthropology and archaeology impact present day communities. We, we don't see that within our, within our academic institutions. Second of all, there are institutions like there at the University of New Mexico with the Maxwell. We have another one at uh, NMSU, other state agencies that hold a collection of of um, ancestral remains and items that have ties to present day communities, even here in our state. One of the things that we could push for, I believe, is always to, to keep pressure on our institutions to say, how are we progressing with moving those collections back to their um, present day communities? Um, the other thing that, that challenges us here in the state is where then do we reinter those remains? And that is a challenge that many of our tribal communities are faced with. While we get through the process of making a claim for and actually repatriating um, some of those ancestral remains, the question at the end of the day is where do they get reinterred? Um, National Park Service has a policy, an internal policy, that they will only take remains from where we can um, show that they were taken from within the boundaries of the park. There are other federal agencies that have their own internal policies that make it difficult for reinterment of human remains. 
those are things all that that as archaeologists, as as citizens, as um, professionals, we can also take a look at to see what are those internal policies and what are those barriers that actually make repatriation and reinterment of those remains um, difficult. Uh, the state uh, here is has a um, Native American reburial act and that act uh, currently is being worked on by the Department of Cultural Affairs to to try and find some resolutions to help tribes actually get to the point of being able to reinter those remains. And so there are multiple facets where people can um, push for change, but I think also just basically everyday conversations like this, having everyday conversations with colleagues, with up and coming students, those mentors, mentees, about what are those ethical obligations and implications to present day tribes are important. We are talking about the thousands of remains of indigenous people still in museums and research institutions here on Let's Talk New Mexico and the barriers to returning them to communities. I am Megan Kamrick, and we'll be right back. Composer Danny Elfman named this violin concerto 1111 because by what he called some weird quirk of fate, when he finished writing the piece, it was 1111 measures long. I don't believe this. It's 1111 measures. Danny Elfman and the 1111 Concerto on the next performance today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Dozens are charged in a raid on a Nigerian same-gender wedding. Canada warns its queer citizens about traveling to the U.S. And LGBTQA plus voices are loud and queer at the 60th anniversary March on Washington. Those stories and more this week because you've chosen This Way Out. That's This Way Out, Friday morning at 8.30, right here on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. Just a note, next week is our fundraiser, and we will not have a live show, but we'll have some bits from previous shows. But we'll return in two weeks to talk about the impact of social media on young people. Today, we're talking about the barriers to returning the remains of Native Americans still in museums and institutions, 30-plus years after a federal law was supposed to make sending them home easier. There's still time to call this morning, 505-277-5866, or email letstalk at kunm.org. And I've been joined by reporter Mary Hudetz from ProPublica. You can find the Repatriation Project on our website at kunm.org on the post for the show. Also, Teresa Pascal, Director of the Office of Tribal Historic Preservation at Acoma Pueblo. Joining us here in studio are officials with the Maxwell Museum of Anthropology at the University of New Mexico, Director Carla Sinopoli. Is that correct? <laughs> and curator of archaeology, Carrie Schlier. We also have executive director of the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture in Santa Fe, Polly Nordstrand. Uh, Carla and Carrie, I guess just say your name when you're talking so we know. Uh, how many ancestor remains are in the Maxwell collection and where did they come from? Um, we have reported about 1,400 ancestors in the Maxwell, originally to NAGPRA, um, 
We have repatriated currently 800 ancestors. We know there are some more as we are updating our inventories. Um, they came in to us in a number of ways. Um, as Mary talked about, the early history of archaeology involved excavations, large field projects uh, throughout New Mexico. The University of New Mexico Anthropology Department was founded in 1928. They very quickly began doing research, um, including the excavations of ancestors and belongings and, and, and a number of major sites, including Chaco Canyon. Um, and they were brought back to UNM. In 1932, a museum was created to take responsibility for those collections. So many of our collections come from these early, well-documented excavations. We also do have a large, uh, a sizable number of individuals who have been identified currently as culturally unidentifiable or culturally unaffiliated. This is a category that we always view as a temporary category. That is a category that through consultations uh, and work with tribes, we will be able to connect many of them to descendant communities. But we do, at the Maxwell, we have a policy that many museums don't have, that we will accept human remains from whoever. Oh, really? In the sense that for us, we feel it's better to mm. have them in someone's care until they can be repatriated mm. rather than being sold on eBay or in someone's attic. You People know, sell so these on eBay? It's not legal, but it does happen. Wow. Um, you know, so we have some ancestors for whom we have no information whatsoever other than that they are Native. And it's those in ancestors that we are eager, as Teresa was talking about, to find a process and a place for reburial through a process of repatriation. Uh, thank you, Carla. And um, you mentioned earlier archaeological digs. How have those practices changed in archaeology? I don't know if, Carrie, would you be... Able to talk. Of course. I think especially in the Southwest, it's changed pretty dramatically over that the long period of time. Back in the 1930s and 40s, really large-scale excavations where entire communities were excavated. And of course, many ancestors were, um, were excavated. Now, I think most research projects, many don't involve excavation now, um, but those that do involve excavation tend to be very small in scale, very focused on a particular research question. And I would say most excavations that happened now in the Southwest are very focused on working with communities before doing any of those excavations. Um, other excavations happen that are because a road is going in, a road construction, um, some sort of project like that. And of course, if any of those projects are going to happen, say through the state, you have to have very formal policies of how you would handle it if an ancestor was recovered and then ways to return or most of the time, maybe even stop that excavation so that the ancestor did not was not disturbed. And Polly Nordstrand from the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture, what about Mayak? How many ancestor remains do you currently hold and where do they come from? So I'm relatively new to the museums. I've been there about 10 months. We have about 700, but mm -hmm. we also have collections that are not. So I, 
I'm mm-hmm. using museum terms, and so when I say we have collections, I want everyone to understand that um, that's a museum term. Mm-hmm. But we have um, agreements with other agencies, so with the Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Bureau of um, Reclamation, for example, but we have many, many more. And we um, have a curatorial agreements with them to care for ancestors that um, are in the process of being returned or that need long-term storage. These were uh, remains that were found on agency or federal land. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot. So our collections um, started as early as the. I think the first one that we have excavation-wise was from 1907, when um, Edgar Hewitt was one of the early archaeology anthropology at the at the beginning of these um, fields in the United States. He was one of these researchers that went out and did a lot of this kind of excavation, early excavation. And so we have, you know, remains from as early as a 1907 excavation. And a lot of our collections are really coming from the 1950s and 60s when um, human remains were being excavated during those times. Um, We do have a call from Bill in Los Lunas. Or I'm sorry, for, yeah, go ahead, Bill. Thanks for calling in. Hello, good morning. Hi. Yes, ma'am. I appreciate the endeavor that uh, indigenous people are doing to receive back their remains and stuff. But one critical remains that I'm uh, more involved in is the Clovis man and the Clovis people that were here during the Ice Age. So I want to know if they're going to also try and receive those artifacts. Thank you. Remains. Thank you. Do any of you want to take that? I'm not sure where the Clovis man remains actually are. I mean, I can't speak specifically to that point, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to just um, bring out something that, so I began my career in museums in the early 90s. So my, my whole career has been defined by the NAGPRA law in terms of what I consider museum ethics. I want to remind people that's the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. <laughs> right. And this is Polly speaking. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, one of the the first ways of trying to make peop- the non-Native community understand um, how Native people approached human remains, and, and that even has changed now. We're, we're talking about ancestors now instead of this more clinical term, human remains, that's changed over Mm -hmm. time, was to talk about um, them as your grandmother. How would you feel if your grandmother was unearthed? And that really brings it home to people in a way that we are thinking about, most of us hopefully are thinking about our grandmothers as this loving person that was um, integral to our lives and our own development as a person that cared for us and that we loved. And so it's that understanding of all of, all people were loved by someone at one point. And that takes them out of that realm of being a specimen mm. for an investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that when we're thinking about this, that that transformation of thought has been happening the entire time um, that, that museums and institutions have been thinking about how do we care for ancestors 
We do have another caller, uh, Michael from Albuquerque. Uh, welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. What did you want to say this morning? Yeah, good morning, everyone. I appreciate everyone's um, the, the, the topic for today. And I, I guess I would just say, you know, I think that uh, I know this is about NAGPRA and, and museums and, 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 and the like, but um, I think this really there, there's a real there's a broader issue here. And that is the Eurocentric, ethnocentric sort of environment um, that academia and all of us in terms of this society are caught up in. And it it tends to devalue um, Native thought. It tends to devalue um, Native um, input. And I mean, in, in so many academic environments, and I've been in University of Utah, University of Hawaii, uh, and as well as Berkeley, and in in many of those institutions to this day, and my, I'm in public health, and many of those institutions still um, have a long way to go in terms of really acknowledging and recognizing indigenous thought, in, in indigenous professionals, and um, and in some cases, people in those environments to this day, in my experience over over the past. 71 years, um, still think or want to think that they, they know more about, about Native people than Native people. And so while I can appreciate the comments that were made about being more open and engaged, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And it's not, it's not, it, it's not Native people that need to be doing that work. It, it's those people who are in those institutions who occupy positions of power and privilege and 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 really need to look in the mirror and ask themselves what is their commitment to um, engaging native communities and and hiring and, and employing native professionals who are out there are training those professionals so that they can do the work that needs to be done um, because okay. the door is not always open to everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Michael. Um, Carla, I think Maxwell has recently hired someone who can focus on NAGPRA issues. Yeah. Yes. Um, Maxwell, for the last two years, has had a, finally has had a finally. Permanent, permanent NAGPRA coordinator position. Our, our first person uh, moved on uh, for another opportunity after a relatively short while, but our new NAGPRA coordinator... Um, who is Indigenous, just joined us on Tuesday. Um, So she's still learning the ropes, um, but we're really excited to have her. Uh, She has a degree in Indigenous law as well as museum studies as well as anthropology. So so we are delighted to have a full-time staff person devoted to NACPRA. And Polly, I know you, you all don't have that right now, but that would help. We don't have a NAGPRA coordinator, um, but I do want to say I'm, as the director, I'm a member of the Hopi tribe. Mm-hmm. We have two curators on staff who are from, one is from Santa Clara Pueblo and the other is from Okeowenge, mm-hmm. and we have other Native people on staff. So our museum is fortunate to have uh, Native people working at high-level positions that can make these decisions. I also want to make sure I get this question in here. Your policy and your institutions right now, if researchers reach out and want to do research on your holdings. I'm not positive that we have a policy because okay. we're a 
state, state entity, okay. and the, the word policy is uh, specific in ah, our legal okay. systems. But we, um, when we have, this is Polly from the Museum mm-hmm. of Indian Arts and Culture, just to let people know. We uh, have a committee that takes and considers all research questions, but we would certainly not allow research on human remains without consulting our tribes. Okay. And yes. Carla? And at the Maxwell, we do not allow, similarly, we have a committee that reviews research requests. We do not allow research on human re- on ancestors mm-hmm. or uh, funerary belongings um, and would not without the approval and direct input of descendant communities. We had talked about the difference between destructive and non-destructive research, which I don't know if you want to speak briefly about what that the differences in those and if that what you just articulated holds true for sure destructive research is research that destroys part of the specimen mm-hmm. to gain information okay uh, whereas non-destructive research is research that does not physically harm the specimen okay for ancestors there is no research at okay. all whether destructive or non-destructive okay um when did that policy go into effect formally in 2019 okay um, Teresa Pascal from ACMA, I did want to turn back to you for a moment. Um, Michael uh, talked a bit about this. You told Mary in the ProPublica articles that tribal communities have shouldered the burden of this work, both the financial cost and the emotional distress. Your tribe, like others, had to draw on existing ceremonies to establish a new process for reburials that didn't exist before the looting. Would you be willing to talk a bit more about what it's like to carry this burden for tribes um, if, for instance, institutions might not have the funding or resources to have someone working full time to do tribal outreach? So part of the burden, at least in my experience in the years that I've been a director here for the Pueblo of Acoma since 2006, um, really has been to to see the vast difference um, differences across institutions in how that consultation begins with tribes. And in those instances where where the Pueblo makes a decision to engage with an institution um, to to go on that journey, it really is a journey um towards repatriation of ancestral remains it can oftentimes be difficult most often um we we are talking about ancestral remains that are housed within institutions where a clear claim can be made those are some of the the easiest uh, repatriation cases However, in my experience, um, there are cases that are, for lack of a better English word, just plain disturbing um, based on the testing um, that was done in the the 1900s um, to ancestral remains. Uh, Sometimes we've had uh, medical research institutions do do testing or removal of ancestral remains and part of my job as the director and for those of my colleagues who serve as TIPO officers 
you know, for their respective tribal communities know firsthand that they are probably the first line of communication between a tribe and an institution to understand one, what does an institution have? How did they acquire it? And what if anything were done to those, those items or those ancestral remains? Um, and I, as, as, as a director, and maybe more so because I am probably one of the few female um, directors of a program such as this, really begin to absorb um, that trauma of understanding that legacy of what was done to these ancestral remains. And in certain instances, finding a location for for repatriation of those ancestral remains or reuniting uh, remains that have been separated. Sometimes we can have uh, research that was done that actually separates separates the, the human remains um, by piece. And so sometimes, sometimes um, getting all of the remains back in one location might be difficult. Um, so those are the types of traumas that that tribes are having to to absorb, but they're also having then to absorb the cost. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the cost of time of of staff to participate in in these active dialogues and planning and and the process itself. There are NAGPRA grants that can cover some of that cost, and sometimes institutions do have funds to cover that. But we're talking about all of the time and effort that it really takes, and those are sometimes costs that, that we can't calculate. I'm so sorry, Teresa. They're playing me out on the music, just like the Oscars. Um, this has been a great conversation. Please go and read the ProPublica articles. I'm sure Mary Hudetz and her colleagues will continue reporting on this as uh, changes to NAGPRA are in the works. Thanks to everyone who called and emailed. Thanks to Mary Hudetz, Teresa Pascal, Polly Nordstrand, Carla Sinopoli, and Carrie Schler. Let's keep the conversation going. Find us on Facebook at KUNM Radio or email Let's Talk at KUNM.org.